It is always a privilege, but a sobering one, to stand in this box and share with the people of St. Paul's what I think it is God may want to say to them. But this afternoon, I am deeply moved and honoured to stand here by invitation. So thank you, John Francis, for including me in this most glorious of days. You and I don't go back many years, and neither was I influential in your call to ordained ministry, but we do share some precious things. One is those cool, damp islands off the northwest coast of Europe. (laughs) The island that snared your heart is a little to the west of the one that gave me birth. A little greener, a little damper, a little more laid back, but one that has punched well above its weight in music, culture and spirituality. Three things that you, John Francis, possess in abundance. Your spiritual connection with the Emerald Isle stems from your profound sense of justice, your yearning to stand in solidarity with oppressed people and marginalised populations. And I today am moved to confess that it has been at the hands of the people of my larger island that the people of your smaller island have suffered an evil that is without excuse. I'm sorry, mate. So let's have a game of rugby and a pint and move on. Just as long as it's not your undrinkable Guinness. But there are other, more splendid treasures that have captured both our hearts. This parish, for one. Although, in the spring, I must confess to feeling unsure whether you would accept my call to come here. Would this man, I wondered, whose heart beats with passion for the poor, the excluded, the people banished to the margins, would he be truly happy in Westfield, New Jersey? Would this big-hearted, open-minded troubadour lay down his head and his guitar to live and laugh and pray and weep and mourn and dream and dance in this harvest field with God's beloved long enough to make a difference in their lives? to lead them to change, and perhaps more importantly, to be changed by them. Would the troubadour let himself love us and let himself be loved? Would the travelling minstrel be able to turn a deaf ear to the road as it called him back to one more show? But you said yes. (laughs) Not just to me, but to all of those things. You uttered the words of Isaiah on that smoky, shiny, holy day that we read about just now. Here I am. Send me. 
And those of us who have for just a few months watched you grow beyond measure as part of this unique and beautiful community say thank you Lord for sending us John Francis. It was the year that King Isaiah died. That was the year the prophet saw the Lord. The year that King Isaiah died. It was a traumatic year, the year that King Isaiah died. An anxious year, a worrying year. A year that lifted the nation out of its warm, comfortable snooze and shook it awake. The year that King Isaiah died was a year of mourning, of disorientation, of troubling transition. The year that King Isaiah died was 742 BC. The year that King Isaiah died, the nation of Judah mourned a good king. One of only eight kings to be called good in the history books of the Hebrew scriptures. Under Isaiah, Judah enjoyed military success and material prosperity. It was a time of security and national blessing. It was also a long time. Isaiah became king at the age of 16 and reigned for 52 years. Not quite Elizabeth II standards, but getting up there for pre-modern times. He came to the throne after the death of his father, Amaziah, who had also been a good and godly king and had himself reigned for 27 years. And before him, another righteous monarch, Isaiah's grandfather, Joash. He had reigned 40 years. So in the year that King Isaiah died, the nation was plunged into uncertainty. Judah had prospered for 119 years of stability under three beloved and accomplished rulers. No one could remember a time of national crisis or suffering. Let me say that again because actually that is quite shocking to our ears. There was no one alive who had experienced national suffering or crisis. In the year that King Isaiah died, questions were asked. What will happen to us now? Is his son strong enough to protect us, wise enough to lead us? Will our glory days turn to restless nights? Will our enemies take advantage of the old king's death and invade us? Is God's blessing still upon us or is this a sign that we are forsaken? And at this moment of national grief and uncertainty, God invades his own temple. Yes, I am still reigning. Yes, the future is good. And yes, Isaiah, I am setting you apart for a magnificent task. So tell me, Isaiah, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? So 
saying that we too live in times of uncertainty is possibly the most uncontroversial thing I will do today. (laughs) Whatever our politics and our nationality, we must agree that uncertainty is the hallmark of our age. Governments teeter, markets dive, workers, parents and every thoughtful, engaged citizen frets about where we are going and who we are becoming. Society is changing at bewildering speed, fuelled by dizzying technological innovation and the end of faith in our once trusted institutions. The judiciary... The media, the academy, law enforcement, government, and institutions of worship. In the Christian church, our fretting has reached epidemic levels, and the reasons are obvious. In the mainline church, just 16% of worshippers are under 30, and more than a quarter are over 65. This week, across the United States, over 100 churches will close. In the Episcopal Church, we are losing 34,000 members a year. And in the last 10 years, attendance has declined 24%. Today is the year that King Uzziah died. We mourn the death of old certainties, ancient truths, boring predictability when society was stable and when all we had to do was unlock the doors on Sunday to enjoy a full church. But if God can invade his temple in 742 BC, then why can't he crash our churches, our communities, our grieving broken hearts now, today? And why can he not set apart John Francis Martha III for a magnificent task? And when God does break in and break out, as is happening this very afternoon in word, sacrament and worship, and when he utters the life-transforming question, whom shall I send and who will go for us, what will our answer be? We know John Francis' response, but what about you? May the God who issues us the call and gives us ears to hear it, give us also hearts that are ready to announce, here am I, send me. You see, there's an alternative to grieving the loss of the good old days. Let us love our tradition, let us honour our history, but let us shun nostalgia. Because when God invades his temple, oh, and you are his temple, he brings those Advent twins hope and newness. The conviction flickering in the cold that God is doing a new thing. J.F., we share something more than a call and a love for this parish. 
a belief that, as Jesus puts it in the Gospel lesson, the harvest is plentiful. At our first meeting, it was clear that you are held captive, compelled by a conviction that has its origins not in the imagination of humans, but the wild, expansive, unpredictable mind of God. The conviction that God is not finished with this world. That even now, in bustling Westfield with nine more shopping days until Christmas, God is here, out there, doing things we can't perceive or devise, and waiting for us, God's church, to get involved. You share the belief that the mainline church, even after decades of decline, can be a powerful channel for God's healing, reconciliation, salvation. Probably not in the ways of old, before the digital revolution, Sunday trading and Sunday school sports, but in ways that are risky, challenging, even shocking but beautifully pregnant with God's kingdom. It's that kingdom of justice, peace and inclusion and your passion for that kingdom that brings you to this moment in your life. Thank you for hearing God, for spotting the potential in this parish and for surveying the harvest field and knowing it is ripe for harper gathering. Today, Troubadour, the tool of your trade, which has always been a guitar, becomes a scythe. Because according to Jesus, the harvest is plentiful. Don't put away the guitar, because we love it and we want to hear more of it. (laughs) But the scythe is now your call. The fields are bursting So, Troubadour, take your scythe and join us. Stand with me and these beloved and harvest with us. Show us how it's done. Dare to go into places where the harvest grows but where farmers have seldom gone and reap. Mind though, your shoulders will ache, your hands blister, you may lose heart. Because although the harvest is plentiful, the scythe may sometimes appear not to work. We'll support you in those times. For such a time as this, John Francis, God has called you. For such a time as this, John Francis, God has set you apart. For such a time as this, O handful of dust, God has created you and nurtured you, lovingly, gently, delicately, crafted you, shaped you, and formed you. For such a time as this, O child of God, the Spirit has led you through four decades of experience, some beautiful and rich, some challenging, even desolate, Many, many filled with glory and accomplishment, others with bewilderment, even with searing pain. For such a time as this, O minister of the gospel, God created a field, 
golden with a rich, ripe crop. And he formed a troubadour with passion in his soul, justice on his mind, love in his heart, and a song in his mouth. For such a time as this, J.F., God took the minstrel and placed him at the edge of a field. The West Field. (laughs) And put a scythe in his hand. For such a time as this, mate, God gave the troubadour a community and a home. A companionship that he might share with others the task of harvest. And because swinging scythes is tiring, and because the minstrel is still, even after hands are laid on him, a handful of dust, God gave him a loving family and true friends. Come on, mate. Let's harvest. Amen.